0: You might not realize this, but a lot of the alerts you receive on your phone have been written in advance. They might have been composed weeks, months, or even years before. That way, when there's an emergency, someone simply asks to key in a code and the message is automatically sent out. It's a good system, most of the time. I know you're thinking about the incident in Hawaii from a few years back. That message is one of the ones I'm talking about. It was written a long, long time ago. I should know. It's been my job to write, edit, and update the massive list of emergency alerts used by our government. While I didn't have a hand in that particular message, you may have seen my handiwork in more recent alerts about weather and severe natural disasters. Several weeks ago, I was given a list of new messages to enter. My boss shrugged when I asked her why they wanted this nonsense pre-programmed into the system. She didn't know, and figured it was either just a calibration test, or someone was having fun at our expense. It was still the most interesting assignment I'd gotten in a while. We laughed about it around the office. This week, the mood in our office changed. My boss had a meeting with several scary-looking people in dark suits. She emerged from that meeting several shades paler. I tried asking what it was about, but she just shook her head. She'd been given classified information before, it was part of the job, but she'd never been visibly shaken by those briefings. I asked if it had to do with those alerts I entered. She said nothing, but her expression spoke volumes. I don't know if you've seen someone look at you envious of your ignorance, but that was the look she gave me. She went to her office, closed the door, and didn't come out until our shift was done, Her eyes were red and she didn't say a word to anyone as she left. The next morning we learned that she had suddenly quit. We tried calling her but her cell had been disconnected. Any emails we sent were bounced back. Our new temporary manager refused to answer questions and sent out a directive that we were not to discuss department business with anyone. I don't think those alerts I entered are a joke. I think my boss knew what they were about. And now I'm terrified about what I don't know. I'm terrified for what may be happening. I'm terrified we aren't prepared to deal with it. That's why I'm sharing those alerts with you. I don't know what's going to happen to me after I post this. I haven't thought that far ahead, but I can't in good conscience leave people in the dark. If things are about to be as bad as I fear, I want to know that at least I tried to help. After reading these alerts, I hope you're prepared for what's coming. If anyone thinks they know what these mean, don't keep it to yourself. Maybe we can figure out just what the hell is going on. And maybe, just maybe, we can do something about it. Remain in your homes, close all doors, cover all windows and remain in the most central location. Do not answer if you hear knocking. Turn up the volume of all electronic devices. If you have headphones, keep them in with high volume. Do not listen to the voices. Do not remain in your homes. Leave and flee on foot beyond the city limits. Do not look back. Secure family members and then yourself to anything attached to the building foundation. Do not secure to heavy objects. That is not the sun. Don't stare at the object in the sky. Get indoors and onto the lowest level of the building underground if possible the water has changed do not drink it or touch it bottled water is still safe turn off all faucets and water sources turn off all electronic devices and unplug them this device included they can activate them remotely the moon still exists what you are seeing isn't real if you see a green man on your television screen "'Leave the building immediately and alert authorities. "'Animals are not speaking to you. "'Do not listen to them. "'Leave the area immediately. "'The containment area has been breached. "'Evacuate the city and do not return. "'If you hear singing, do not join in. "'Do not hum or whistle. "'They will hear you and they will find you. "'Those are not your deceased relatives. "'Do not speak to them. "'If the walls appear to bleed, leave the building immediately.' Do not touch the oozing substance. Leave behind anyone who makes contact with the substance. You have not traveled in time. It is still the same year. What you are seeing isn't real. Stay indoors. What is falling from the sky is not rain. If it gets inside, use plastic containers to hold it. Do not breathe fumes. You are only temporarily deaf. They can still hear you, so remain calm. Keep your doors locked and hide in the most interior room of the house. Do not climb to the roof to worship. Boil as much water as you can and huddle in the steam. Record the number of children you have. Count every hour. If there are extra children, leave your home immediately. Hopefully this helps you prepare for whatever is coming. Maybe some of you can figure out what all this means. Make whatever preparations you can and cherish the time we have left good luck there's a reason a lot of urban legends originate around campfires there's a lot that can go wrong when you stick a bunch of kids in a campground in the middle of the woods as a camp counselor, it's my job to basically make sure these kids don't get lost or go off on their own. I mostly just make sure they follow the schedule. 7 a.m. wake up, 7.45 for breakfast, 8.15 take them to their first activity, 10 a.m. snack, etc., etc. I'm basically a glorified babysitter. The kids are mostly alright. There's always a couple brown nosers, a couple entitled brats who like to talk about mommy and daddy, A few hooligans. I like the quiet kids who always follow the rules. The hardest part of my job is nighttime. It gets harder to keep track of the kids and they never seem to want to settle down for bed. Then they always want a campfire and s'mores and scary stories. Whoever thought it was a good idea to pump kids full of sugar and tell them stories to scare them into staying awake and then send them off to bed is a real jerk. In order to make sure we don't lose anyone, camp counselors are constantly reminded to count their kids. I only have seven kids this year. The organizers figure, the smaller kid-to-counselor ratio, the better. So I start off my day with a roll call, make sure no one is still in bed or sick. Count them before we leave, count them at the first activity, you get the idea. I've got a pretty good group of kids this year, so I'll admit I haven't always done my count when I should have. Still, I haven't lost a kid yet, so no harm no foul. One night, the kids asked me to tell a campfire story. Normally this is more easily done with a second person. You talk real low and soft. Tell a story warning kids not to do something like wander off on their own or go swimming without supervision. Then when you reach the most tense part of the story, your cohort will yell really loud and scare the crap out of the kids. They all scream. Then they laugh. It works every time. When you don't have a second counselor, though, it's a little tougher. It's also a little difficult coming up with stories all the time, so sometimes the counselors will get together and swap some stories. One particular night, the kids were asking for a story. They already had marshmallow and chocolate smeared all over their faces, so I obliged. This is the story of Clark Thompson. Thirty years ago, young Clark came camping here with his father, to this very campsite. They even used this very fire pit to cook their meals. Like you, Clark had s'mores almost every night before bed. He loved candy and sugar, so much so that his father usually had to limit Clark to two s'mores a night. Some nights, though. Clark would wait until his father was fast asleep, snoring loud enough to wake the dead before sneaking out of his sleeping bag. You could go to where they kept their food, a bucket strung up in a tree to keep it safe from bears. He would carefully untie the rope and lower the bucket, trying to make as little sound as possible. Clark would usually eat a couple marshmallows, some chocolate, never the graham crackers though, those could never satisfy his sweet tooth. When he had eaten his fill, Clark would raise the bucket back up and tie it firmly in place before creeping back to bed. His father was none the wiser. One particular night, Clark snuck out of his sleeping bag for his midnight snack. The moon was so full that night and the stars were so bright he could see everything pretty clearly. Clark untied the bucket and brought down the snacks and dug in. After a while though, Clark had noticed he had eaten too much. Clark had eaten almost everything. All that remained were the crackers. Do you know what happens if you eat too much sugar? A couple of the kids shouted out some answers. You get super hyper. Mom says I bounce off the walls. Boing. My mom says I talk really loud. My mom says I'm annoying. One of the quieter kids whispered, you get a stomachache." I nodded. That's right. You get a stomachache, And that's what happened to Clark. He ate so much he started to feel sick. So Clark decided to go for a walk. Maybe a little exercise would make him feel better. Since the moon was so bright, he didn't bother to bring a flashlight. He figured he would be able to find his way back without a problem. After all, he and his father came camping here all the time. He knew this forest like the back of his hand. So Clark set off, following a trail he knew pretty well. But after a little while, he started to feel worse. The pain in his stomach was so sharp, he had to stop walking. Suddenly, he bent over and started to throw up. Ew! At the mention of puke, all of the kids chimed their disgust in unison, and a few started giggling. When he was done, he noticed something weird. Maybe it was something shiny. Maybe it was an animal. But whatever it was, It led Clark off the trail and further into the woods. Now what do we always tell you when we go on hikes? Always follow the path. The kids sounded like robots reciting the rule. Right. So eventually Clark realized his mistake. He tried to turn around and go back to the path, but he couldn't find his way. Nothing looked familiar to him. Without any obvious landmarks to lead him back to his camp, Clark did what anyone would do. He called for help. He must have been too far from his camp for his father to hear him though, but something else hurt him. No one knows what happened to poor Clark, just that they found him in the morning, or what was left of him. What happened to him? The fire was starting to die down, so it was getting harder to see the kids. It was time to wrap up the story and send them to bed. Some say it was a bear. Some say it was Bigfoot, some say it was a psychotic cannibal, but what was left of him was a mangled mess. He was missing a foot and an arm, his gut spilled out around him, his bones were picked clean. The kids sat in silence for a while, digesting the story. Maybe it was a little too heavy for a bedtime story. Alright, let's clean up and off to bed. It was a little awkward, but the damage was already done. The kids cleaned up their trash and put the candy away in silence. I was starting to feel a little guilty. I hoped some of them would be able to sleep. As they filed off towards their tents, I did a quick head count. I counted eight children. Not seven. To the left of the dimming fire, someone was still seated. Something didn't seem right about him. One of his legs ended too soon. One arm ended right at the shoulder. At one of the feet, a dark liquid had started to pool. Every seat had been filled. The aisles are empty. We've boarded and taken off, all while a nervous-looking man stands mysteriously at the back of the plane. No one seems to notice him. I do. He was already on board when I sat down, in my row at the end of the aisle. Dressed casually, he carried himself with a sullen anxiety that I found unsettling. I hate flying, always have, but still this felt different. I gave him a once-over, he looked normal enough, I found no reason to be worried, yet his presence perturbed me. I shrugged it off, there wasn't much that I could do. I tried to relax. My mind wandered and I found myself casually daydreaming about his identity. I imagined that he was a middling cop, nervous about transporting a dangerous criminal. Then he became a repentant lover, who had broken through security to proclaim his desires to an ex maybe he was a disgruntled former employee waking to take his vengeance as the plane filled and the man took no further action though my interest waned i was tired with worry and already sick on the long flight ahead i was tired with worry and already sick of the long flight ahead his presence drained from my mind and i rested my head against the curved innards of the aircraft and daydreamed instead about nothing at all at the sound of takeoff, however, my posture straightened and his bottled shape tilted back into the corner of my eye. I felt compelled to look over. There he was, still, with a manner slightly less sullen but precisely more anxious, standing opposite the bathroom door, staring down the aisle. No crew member came to see him. I double checked the seatbelt sign, on. I glanced over at my two roommates. They didn't seem to notice weird. I coyly nudged the armrest of my neighbor, an elderly woman, who had been reading the in-flight brochure. She kindly looked up and over at me. I gave a friendly smile and silently gestured towards the man standing just behind us. She smiled back, oblivious, and elbowed the old man sitting next to her, who leaned forward, slightly, donated a half-hearted head nod. Suddenly the plane lurched forward and we were thrust back into our seats. I straightened up, slightly unnerved. I could see the man in the corner of my eye he didn't move I raised the blinder on the window next to me the world outside sped up to a blur I sat upright and popped my head over the seats looking for a crew member I saw a stewardess near the middle of the plane sitting comfortably by the emergency exit door facing towards us she didn't seem to notice the standing man I glanced out of the window the runway began to shrink below us Still, the man stood. Hmm. When the seatbelt sign blinked off, I quickly unfastened, I excused myself to the elderly couple and stepped out into the aisle. I was curious. Should I say something? To the man? To the crew? To another passenger? Perhaps he was an air marshal. But weren't they supposed to blend in? The man wore plain clothes but stood out as everyone sat, not exactly conspicuous. "'Maybe he was some kind of inspector for the airline, "'maybe for the government.' "'Are you waiting for the bathroom?' I asked. "'He was about my height, "'though he was slouched slightly against the wall. "'He had been staring down the aisle, "'off into the distance, "'but abruptly glanced my way when questioned. "'I held my breath in anticipation, "'only to receive a dismissive headshake. "'He turned back around and resettled into his distant stare. "'That was disappointing,' I thought. Maybe the daydreams had heightened my expectations. I opened the bathroom door and slunk inside. I was feeling woozy. I splashed some water on my face and stared at my reflection in the mirror. I didn't look great, but that wasn't unusual. I shook my head and walked back out. The man was still standing there, staring down the aisle. A small three-person procession had also formed in the space just outside of the bathroom. I slipped out as an elderly woman slipped in. The two older men behind her shambled forward. One met my eyes and gave a polite smile, which I returned. The other had his head down. Neither seemed to acknowledge the standing man. I wondered if they had questioned him as well. I excused myself to the elderly couple in my row and shuffled back down into my window seat. The man stood just behind us, transfixed by some distant point. No sense of threat seemed to emanate from him, though, and I was exhausted, so I slunk down in my chair, closed my eyes, and dozed off. I dreamt of a beautiful summer day in a little quiet town. I walked along the street alone but content. Fine two-story brick homes with shingled roofs washed up and down my left side like angular waves in a long, endless park slithered brightly along my right. There were no cars on the road, parked, or moving but every other house had a vehicle or two stationed in the driveway the park was empty too though there were half a dozen or so red and white balloons tied to a bench which just sat which sat just off the sidewalk opposite to me beside a big oak tree as I walked the sun glared above and I noticed a pair of shoes sticking out from behind the oak tree they were black with brown tips and were pointed directly up towards the sky as I walked forward I saw that these shoes were connected to a pair of clean grey dress pants and as I walked further still I saw that a torso draped in a pale blue button up shirt jutted out from the top of these pants a rotund gut concealed any further viewing but it heaved and hoed so as to adjust that a head may rest on the other side curious I crossed the street and made my way towards the body As I approached, the belly began to breathe in heavier exaggerations, until I stood directly over a throbbing mass of clothing. I looked down for a face but no head appeared. Instead, a framed mirror weighed down the collar of an empty buttoned-up shirt, which now expanded and deflated so intensely that I thought it might explode. I looked into the mirror and saw my own reflection, and then someone else's. I jumped and spun around. No one was there. I looked up no one I looked back down a root from the big oak tree had curled around the mirror's frame and slithered its way into the shirt the two pulsed in rhythm with each other a strong breeze blew the big oak tree creaked loudly and swayed in the wind until it looked like it might fall over panicked I gripped the root woven into the shirt and pulled at it with all my might I gently awoke My left elbow tingled and my hand was numb. I rose up in my seat and gave my arm a shake. I looked around. A food cart sauntered forward a few rows up. The elderly lady next to me was reading. Her husband appeared to be asleep. I had to go to the bathroom. I excused myself to my neighbor and carefully pirouetted past her sleeping companion. Still groggy I shook my head, wiped my brow and looked up, right into the eyes of the standing man. I froze. His eyes were huge, like that of a child, but his face was worn and weathered, and thin strands of pale brown hair fell upon his forehead. He stared right through my soul, more sorrowful than ever, but less anxious than before. He didn't speak. I couldn't speak. I stumbled backwards a little bit, but caught myself on the edge of a seat. I felt shell-shocked. I tried to gather myself but as I stood up a cold heavy force blasted into my backside hurling me forward. I was barely able to contort my body enough to avoid the man standing in front of me. My back rammed against the bathroom door and I froze like a prisoner caught in a spotlight. "'Oh my god!' I heard from the aisle. "'I'm so sorry!' I turned. The food cart manned by a distressed looking stewardess rattled in the walkway. "'I I didn't see you! I'm so sorry!' I only looked down for a second, she pleaded. I. it's all right, I stammered as I straightened up and tried to compose myself. I wasn't paying attention. It's my fault. The stewardess furrowed her brow and squinted her eyes. Are you all right? she asked. Everything but my pride, I responded dryly. I was shaken up inside, but I didn't want to make a fuss. I composed my outward appearance. I turned to the standing man, contemplating whether or not I should even bother apologizing for the ruckus. He seemed indifferent to the whole situation. He looked ill. Did the stewardess notice? Why didn't she or anyone else try to seat him during takeoff? He must have some sort of authority, but he appeared so fragile and sickly. I looked back at the flight attendant to gauge her interest. She didn't seem alarmed. "'Excuse me,' she said politely." As she began to slowly push the food cart forward again, I need to get by. I gave my head a shake. I opened up the bathroom door and slunk away inside. I felt panicked. If the man was sick, he should get help. Someone must have already approached him, though. It's not like he was hiding. The stewardess didn't seem concerned at all. Everything must be under control. Still, I couldn't shake this feeling of impending doom. I wasn't sure what to do. I looked in the mirror to calm myself, but didn't like what I saw. I turned towards the inside of the bathroom door and lay my forehead against it. I put my face in my hands and tried to gather myself. What was I getting so worked up over? Was I getting sick? Was I going crazy? Maybe I'm just hungry. When did I last eat? I strained to remember. The only memory of food that I could resuscitate on the spot was from a meal that had taken place at least a few nights earlier. My eyes began to well up as I thought about that dinner. Maybe I was becoming feverish. I rubbed my cheeks. My wife and I made roast beef in Yorkshire pudding that night. It was an old family recipe. My parents used to make it for my brothers and I growing up. We made it for our kids now. My parents had passed away years ago. God, I miss them. I couldn't wait for this godforsaken plane ride to be over so that I could see my family again. I was getting flustered. I just needed to eat, I told myself. That special dinner was plentiful, but even something as tender and delicious as a good roast beef can't last a man a lifetime. I resolved to hunt down the food cart that had assaulted me earlier and plunder it with a vengeance. I tossed some water on my face, took a deep breath, and stepped out of the bathroom. I don't know what I was expecting, but there he was, the mystery man just standing there. I need to ask about him too, I thought, for my own sake. He was in the same place he had been this whole time, staring off into the distance. I eyed him cautiously as I searched for the stewardess in the back. She wasn't there. I turned and gazed off into the distance and saw her chatting with a fellow crew member closer to the front of the plane. I took off after them. I passed through a mostly silent field of passengers. Nearly everyone was lost in their own little world. People were sleeping, reading, watching in-flight entertainment. Very few were talking. There was a hushed air about the cabin. Most seemed to be traveling alone. I noticed that a majority of the plane's population were elderly. Three or four middle-aged individuals stood out, as did a few unaccompanied youths. A cloth-wrapped infant was being rocked asleep by a young woman in an aisle seat and three young men, outfitted in army attire, quietly joked around near the emergency exits. The rest of the plane, however, was decidedly more aged and reversed. Was I headed to Florida? I genuinely couldn't remember. Can I help you? The two flight attendants suddenly stood before me. Uh, yeah. Sorry. I stammered, jolted out of my inquisitive reverie. Is it too late to order some food? I asked, feeling a little faint. It is, unfortunately, answered the stewardess. We're about to make our descent. I was surprised. For some reason, I had expected a lengthier flight. Maybe I had slept for longer than I realized. You should return to your seat, she smiled. The seatbelt sign will be turning on momentarily. Okay, I yielded. I turned around and looked down the aisle. The standing man stared back. Uh, actually, can I ask you a question? I said turning around. Yes, sir, responded the stewardess politely. I wasn't exactly sure what to say or how to put it. I gathered myself once again. Um, do you see that man standing outside the bathroom? I asked, pointing back up the aisle towards him. I immediately regretted my approach. What if I was actually going crazy? What if I had a fever and was hallucinating? I didn't want to scare anyone. If I was pointing towards a piece of empty space and proclaiming that an invisible man was harassing me, then this flight was going to get really tense for everyone, really fast. You can never rest when a maniac is in your midst. Yes, replied the stewardess. Oh, I blurted out. I didn't know whether to feel relieved or more worried. I had seriously considered that she might not be able to see him. "'Well, um, he's been standing outside the bathroom since takeoff. I don't know if he's ill or if he's a special part of the crew or something. I don't know, but he hasn't sat down once since I boarded. He doesn't look well, either. He looks worried and sickly, and he hasn't been responsive. Is he part of the crew?' "'No,' replied the stewardess. "'Oh, well, I mean, shouldn't we help him to a seat, then? If we're about to land, he should be seated, right?' I was sweating a little bit now, and more worried than before. None of this really made any sense. ''And where do you suggest we seat him, sir?'' replied the stewardess firmly. ''What?'' I asked, genuinely shocked by the flippancy of her response. I turned around and looked for an empty seat. Surely there was one. How else would he have gotten on the plane? If he wasn't part of the crew, he needed a ticket. A ticket would have a seat. I frantically looked around. Every seat was filled. Every seat except for mine. I began to sweat profusely. I felt fevered and exhausted. A tinge of adrenaline rushed through my body. I looked up and out again at the mystery man. He stared back. I turned to the flight attendant. What do you mean he doesn't have a seat? Did you check his ticket? How did he get on board? What's he going to do while we land? I was becoming frantic. You could give him your seat, suggested the stewardess matter-of-factly. But... I mumbled. Then where would I sit? She didn't respond. I looked helplessly at the other flight attendant, a steward. He said nothing. I felt like I was going to be sick to my stomach. I needed to sit down. I wondered who looked worse right now, me or the standing man. Should I give him my seat? I looked up at him. Even from far away, I could see that he looked gravely ill. No one was helping him. No one was helping either of us. I need to sit, I uttered. I felt like I was about to lose consciousness. It's you or him, I heard. Why? I whispered. There's only one seat left, someone said, and he's here for yours. My stomach dropped the full seven miles below my feet. My vision blurred and my body felt faint. I turned around back towards the mysterious man. What the hell was going on? I tried to shout but nothing came out. I grabbed the edges of the surrounding seats and pulled myself towards him. I needed to get back to my seat. I picked up steam and drew near but still he did not move. Don't. Take. My. Seat. I sputtered out. No one paid us any attention. I reached the last row almost on my knees. I gripped the top of the seat and pulled myself up. I stood for a second facing down my row towards my empty seat and then fainted sideways directly into the standing man. I felt no contact until I hit the ground. My eyes were closed, but I felt the cold hard fabric of the airplane carpet rub against my cheek. I laid there, exhausted. Terrified I mustered what strength I could and clumsily pushed myself up onto my knees. I kneeled for a second turned away from the action, and tried to catch my breath. I felt as heavy as a mountain. Slowly, I pushed my way back onto my feet, leaning against the cold plastic wall for support. I turned around, labored in and out of breath, and looked forward. The man was gone. I became frozen in fear. In the corner of my eye, I could see someone in my chair with thin strands of pale brown hair strewn over huge eyes, staring at me. In the distance the aisle lights began to shut off, leaving only pure and eternal darkness in their wake. One by one they clicked off as the darkness raced towards me, until a final click enveloped everything in black. I woke up on my back with a bright light shining in my face. Doctor. I heard a soft, distant voice ask He's waking up I raised my left hand to shade my eyes but it was weighed down by a thick tube which slid from the side of my bed to a mask on my mouth I took a deep breath and felt an incredible soreness in my chest I coughed It hurt so much that I instinctively tried to retreat over the side of the bed A firm hand grasped my shoulder and kept me in place Easy now said a reassuring voice. "'You're going to be all right.' I heard a door open. Someone gasped. "'Daddy?' A voice half-whispered, half-yelled. A child rushed over to the side of my bed, followed cautiously by a woman holding an infant. They all looked familiar. "'It was my family. He might not have the strength to speak right now, but the operation was successful,' explained the reassuring voice. He's got a new pair of lungs and a heart, all from the same donor. They were made available late last night and rushed over just in time for an emergency surgery. Someone began to cry. They sounded grateful. I felt the warm weight of a child rest gently on my shoulder, and a loving hand grasped mine. I held both with all my strength and dozed off contently. At Christmas, we had a recreation of what we had once thought was going to be my last meal. Roast beef and Yorkshire pudding. Everybody was invited. Extended family from all over the country poured into our home to celebrate. Longtime friends stopped by early in the evening. On the way to family dinners of their own, to offer their congratulations and express their joy and relief at my recovery. Near the end of the night, all of the memories and laughter had been given their time and our bellies were full and people started to slowly drain out. I took my brothers and young son upstairs to my home office for our traditional Christmas time glass of bourbon. I poured each cup as they looked fondly over the framed pictures that cluttered the room. Is that him? I heard. I looked up and directed my attention to a photo that was suspended just off to the right and just above the large family portrait that hung as a centerpiece on the wall across from my desk. "'Yep, that's our savior,' I said, looking down at my baby boy asleep in my arms. I kissed his forehead and smiled gratefully. "'Well, cheers,' declared my brother. "'Cheers,' we all chanted, raising our glasses. And then we had a drink for the man in the picture on my wall, a man who none of us had ever met. He smiled back gently from a boat somewhere out at sea, with his brown hair windswept to the side and a child half in frame, sitting precariously on his lap. His face was filled with excitement and amusement as he held up a significant-looking fish by the hook with his left hand. You could see the reflection of his wife taking the picture. In his eyes, they were so big. Thank you for making it this far. I hope you enjoyed the video. I just wanted to quickly let you know about a couple things I have going on. I have an Instagram where I post more personal things about who I am. It isn't just all creepy stuff. You can find me at Stories After Midnight. I also have a Twitter where I mainly retweet and like things I find interesting. The handle for that is in the description, but it is S underscore A underscore Midnight. I should really find another one because that's hard to say. If you really like what I'm doing, consider joining the Midnighters. That's my growing community where we hang out and have fun and talk about cats. You can find a link to our Discord in the description below. We'd love to see you there. Other than that, it'd make me happier than a cat on a table full of antique glassware if you'd like the video and consider sticking around for more. We'll see you in the next one.